we're going to start off tonight because there's three more things that we have not discussed yet that you should be looking for when you're uh, reading the text of Scripture. And before we dive into those three, I want to remind you, this may feel like it's dragged on for so long, talking about the things to look for in the text, but we have to understand that in order to be a good student of the Word, in order to properly study the Word, you've got to read it well. You've got to be a good reader to be a good studier. And so what we're trying to do is set a foundation for, for reading the text so that you then can study the text and apply the text properly. So we're just going to cover three more items, and then we'll kind of review those items based on the handout I gave you. The handout will list all, I think it's 23 different things to observe, whether that's in the form of individual sentences or paragraphs and larger sections of Scripture. We've covered the majority of them now, but let's go over three last ones that might take a little bit it won't take the whole evening, but it'll take a little bit longer to explain. The first one is called interchange. Now, interchange is a literary device used primarily in narrative texts. So we're talking things like the Gospels, Acts, and many of the Old Testament historical books. It's, it's primarily used in those narrative texts, and it involves the contrast and or comparison of two stories at the same time as part of an overall development of the storyline. What that means is it's like a, an episode of television where you're bouncing back and forth between two stories being told to see how they correlate with each other, how they connect with each other, how they um, uh, mirror each other, that sort of thing. And that happens in the text of Scripture on occasion. And so you'll normally be able to identify this by, by seeing the text move back and forth between two scenes or two characters in particular. And so uh, let me give you a great example of this. If you'll open your Bibles, go to, go to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Because between 1 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 4, we have evidence of interchange occurring. It has to do with two families, with one individual in each family as the significant character in that family. And both men have the same role over time. Both men are priests. And both are also identified as judges because we're dealing with the family of Eli and the family of Samuel. Now, you'll notice in 1 Samuel chapter 1, the emphasis is around Hannah and her prayer for a child. That's Samuel's family, but you can also see the interaction happening with Eli's family because Eli is present. Eli is the, the, the one who communicates with, with Hannah and tells her she's going to have a child. By the end of uh, chapter 1, we have that... that um, Promise given, and then we transition in chapter 2 to Hannah's prayer. So the focus of the text then really uh, narrows on Samuel's family in, in, the, in the context of Hannah and her prayer to the Lord for a child, as well as her, her, her promise, her, her uh, uh, willingness to give that child back to the service of the Lord. But by verse 11 of chapter 2, we, we, we make a transition again back to, to Eli. And the focus then becomes Eli for the last half of chapter 2, uh, except for one single verse that mentions Samuel in verse 26. And then the two storylines merge in chapter 3 with, the, uh, with Samuel now residing at the tabernacle with Eli. And he has these dreams in the night. And what are the dreams about? They're about Eli's family. 
And they're about Eli's demise. And then in chapter 4, we read about the death of Eli's horrible sons as well as Eli. So between chapters 1 and 4 of 1 Samuel, we're bouncing between Samuel's family and Eli's family, Samuel's family, Eli's family, Samuel's family, Eli's family. And the, the importance should not be overlooked here. Oh, I didn't move that on. The importance should not be overlooked. We're watching the transition unfold from Eli being the, the primary leader of the Israelites and representative of God to the Israelites that's transitioning now onto Samuel, who, who will become a significant character up until the, the kings come into play. So that interchange is happening in the first four chapters of 1 Samuel. There's another great example that's in the New Testament in the book of Acts. With what you know about Acts, who's the primary character in Acts? Peter and Paul. And they form an interchange between chapters 8 and 13 of the book of Acts. In the first eight chapters of Acts, Peter is the prominent character. I mean, he's going to be the one that stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches the first gospel sermon. He's going to be the one who, who uh, is ar initially arrested in the temple in chapter 3. He's going to be uh, one of the key figures in taking the gospel to the first Gentile converts. In chapter 8 of Acts, what you, ha what you have is uh, Paul being introduced right at the start of that chapter. The tail end of chapter 7 into the first couple verses of Acts 8 focus on uh, introducing Paul. But then Peter returns to center stage as he goes to meet up with Philip, as Philip is converting those individuals in, Samar in, in Sam Samaria, and so we have Peter back into the story. But then chapter 9 transitions us to the conversion of Paul. But then you get to chapter 10, and chapter 10 goes back to Peter. And chapters 10 and 11 of Acts are all about Peter and the household of Cornelius. And then you get to chapter 12. Well, I should say at the end of Acts chapter 11, the last 10 or so verses... Is, is, does uh, talk about Paul for a little while. But then when you get to chapter 12, the focus is again on Peter and his miraculous escape from prison. But then in chapter 13, we start reading about Paul's first missionary journey. And you have a little overlap when you get to chapter 15 with the meeting in, in, in Jerusalem. But after that, Peter fades out and Paul takes center stage. So in particular, between Acts chapter 8, and we could probably bump that to chapter 15, we have this interchange where we're bouncing from Peter's story to Paul's story, Peter's story to Paul's story. And it's as if the, Luke is preparing us for the change of emphasis from being very Jerusalem-centric around Peter to being very mission-emphasized around Paul. So that interchange helps us kind of understand the author and what he's trying to accomplish in the text. And you can find this primarily in narrative uh, texts like the Gospels, the Book of Acts, and other history books in the Old Testament. So that is another thing to be looking for, interchange. Now, let's talk about this one. This one might be the most complicated one. It's called chiasm. And this is not easy to identify because there's no parallel to it, really, in the English uh, literature. It is primarily an Old Testament literary device, um, 
but it does have some appearances in the New Testament. This is one of those that I don't even spot on my own. That usually I'm a resource that I'm studying from a commentary or, or something of that nature is helping me spot these because they're just not intuitive to our literary minds. Chiasm is a literary device um, that is seldom used in English but employed frequently by the biblical authors, especially in the Old Testament. In a chiasma, list of items, ideas, or events are structured in a manner that the first item parallels the last item, the second item parallels the next to last item, and so forth. Right now, you might not be able to picture that, but I'm going to show you an example in just a second. Sometimes chiasms are lengthy and complex. They can be subtle and difficult to notice, and scholars often disagree over whether the author intended the chiasm or, or perhaps the chiastic structure is merely an imagination of the reader. All that to say... They're not easy to spot, and not everybody agrees when one appears. So with that being said, let me give you an example of chiasm. This little sentence has a chiastic structure to it. I got up this morning, got dressed, and drove into town. I worked hard all day, returned home, put on my PJs, and went to bed. The reason this has a chiastic structure to it is because the first statement parallels... Oops parallels the last statement, the second statement parallels the next to last statement, and so on. So the way, you write, the, the way you identify a chiasm is with a structure like this. Notice A and A, B and B, C and C, and then D by itself. A, I got up this morning, first statement, parallels the last statement, went to bed. Both statements revolve around the bed. The second statement, or got dressed, parallels put on my PJs because both involve clothing. Then C, the third statement, and drove into town parallels that returned home statement because both have to do with traveling in direction. And then finally, D is the standalone statement. I worked hard all day because it has no other parallel. Now, that, that is an ABCD, CBA, chiastic arrangement. They can go much deeper than that. I'm going to show you one that makes it all the way to like G or H, I believe. Um, but some of them can be simple. It can be an A, B, B, A structure, and we'll see some of those too. But the, the point of a chiasm is that all the statements build to the center statement or statements, and those are the crux of the literary unit. What is in the center is supposed to be the most important part of the, the unit, and everything is building to it and then building out from it. So this is an example using English. Now let me take you into the text of Scripture and show you what one looks like. We'll start with this one. Psalm chapter 76 and verse 1. Very simple, two-line verse. In Judah God is known, his name is great in Israel. Here's the chiastic structure of this verse. It's an A-B-B-A structure. 1A is in Judah. 2A is in Israel. You, that should be easy to see. Israel and Judah parallel each other. And then in the middle you have God is known is 1B because that's the second statement. And the next to last statement is what parallels it, 2B, his name is great. Whether, and the, those two statements, God is known, his name is great, parallel each other because it's about uh, God is known and his name is great. His name is great means that it's known. It's something people are aware of. So those two statements parallel each other, and they're the center two statements. 
So the, the, the crux of the literary unit here is about God being known. That's the centerpiece. That's what the literary unit focuses upon. That's a very simple chiastic structure. Let me show you one from the New Testament now. That is a little more developed, but not too hard to identify. It's Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, a verse you are probably familiar with. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So here's the chiastic structure of this statement. The first line, no one can serve two masters, gets paralleled in the very last line, you cannot serve God and money. Notice. It doesn't say the same thing, but God and money are two masters. You cannot serve two masters, and then in the last part, it's going to identify two masters you cannot serve. And then the second line, for either he will hate the one, parallels the next to last line, and despise the other. Hate and, and, and Despising and hating are the same concept. And then in the middle, you have and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one, with the ideas of love and devotion being parallel to each other. So what you have is this structure that is putting the emphasis on where your love goes. And the, the literary device is employed here to help bring about that emphasis on love. And the statements leading up to love parallel each other, and the statements leading out of love parallel each other. That's a chiastic structure. Again, there's not really a comparative literary device in English that does this. And it can be quite complicated to uncover. And it can be quite complex. Because it can even take the form of a story. Here we have Genesis chapter 11 and the first nine verses, which tell us the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, the whole earth had one language in the, in the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we dis be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. And there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Now, you're probably looking at that text going, wait a minute. This doesn't use the same language over and over again. That's because in a chiasm, it doesn't have to be the exact same language. It doesn't even have to be the full phrase to accomplish a chiastic structure. So I'm going to show you how this one breaks down, and this one's a little more complex. The first um, phrase that uh, applies to the chiastic structure is the whole earth. And it's paralleled from verse 1. It's paralleled in verse 9 with the reference to all the earth. Those aren't this, you can see it's not the same terminology. They're just paralleling each other. It's not the whole verse or the whole statement. It's just a, a, a phrase in there that parallels each other. And you can see this goes all the way to G. So you can see the 1B and 2B parallel each other, talking about one language versus confusing the language. 
1C, the reference to settling in Shinar, and then the reference to Babel as the proper name usage and the, and the location-oriented language. And, and the, the 1D and 2D, what you have is this reference to come, let us do something, make bricks in verse 3, verses uh, 2D, which is referencing verse 7, come, let us go down. And then in verse, then, then you have E with the phrase of come, let us build, compared with 2E from verse 5. The children of men had built, references to building in both. Then when you get to the Fs, 1F and 2F, 1F is from verse 4, referencing a city and a tower. 2F is from verse 5, referencing a city and a tower. And then that leaves G all alone as the focal point, and the Lord came down. And, and the emphasis on God's involvement in what happens at the Tower of Babel becomes the focal point. That's really complex. And I don't really anticipate any of you are going to sit down this week and start reading through the Bible looking for chiastic structures. If you do, more power to you. But I'm not. <laughs> this is complex, but I, I wanted you to be aware of it. Because if you ever open a commentary and come across some passages, they'll make reference to this. And they'll explain it a little bit. But if you have never heard of it before, you'll be like, what in the world are they talking about? So this is more an awareness thing than it is an anticipation that everybody in here is going to be experts on chiasm by the end of this evening. I just want you to be aware of this literary device because it does make appearances. All right, I'm thoroughly happy to get chiasm out of the way. Last one we're going to talk about is inclusio. I did not misspell that. That's how it's pronounced. It does not have an N on the end. And man, did my uh, uh, Grammarly account hate me today. Inclusio is closely related to chiasm, but it's not nearly as complicated. Inclusio is a literary technique in which a passage, whether that be a story, a poem, or whatever, a passage has the same or similar word or statement or event or theme at the beginning and the end. It's a form of bracketing or framing the literary unit. Inclusio just means there's something at the beginning and something at the end of this literary unit that are the same or at least similar. This is not that hard uh, to, to notice and, and to observe. So, for instance, you can go to Psalm chapter 8. I didn't put the whole thing up there, but Psalm chapter 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And the last verse, verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When you have inclusio, when you have this framing using the same terminology or similar terminology, that is the focal point of that literary unit. The focal point of that literary unit is whatever gets repeated on the front end and, and back end. And it's giving that emphasis to, to that part of the unit. That's the focus of the unit. And in the chiastic structure we just looked at, it was the center the thing that got built to and built away from was the focus. In inclusio, it's whatever gets repeated on the front end and the back end. Here's one from the New Testament. It's in the Beatitudes. The first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, and notice how it ends. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when you get down to the last Beatitude, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That repetition of for theirs is the kingdom of heaven is an inclusio, and it's wrapping all of the Beatitudes into this emphasis on these characteristics, these traits, these blessings 
relate to the one who's in the kingdom of heaven. So that's another example of inclusio. Inclusio can be bigger than just repeated phrases or repeated sentences. It can be repeated storylines. And so one example that uh, has been shared with me comes from the book of Joshua. Joshua chapters 3 through 6 is about how Israel prepares for and then captures the city of Jericho. And one way this section is framed is by a story before it and a story after it dealing with an individual and their relationship with God. Immediately before this section on the walls of Jericho, you have the story of Rahab. That appears in Joshua chapter 2. And Rahab is a story about this woman who was not part of the, 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 the Israelite faith system, but came to believe in God and was saved. And then after the story of the fall of Jericho, we have in Joshua chapter 7 the story of a guy named Achan, who was a member of the, 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 the Israelite nation, who was a member of that community of faith, but disobeyed God and was destroyed. And the inclusio aspect of this is you have a story about one individual and a a saving faith, and then you have a story of an individual whose faith failed through disobedience, and that's bracketing the, the wall of Jericho story and plot. And what it does is it gives emphasis on the fact that if the Israelites will obey God in faith, then they will be successful. If they don't obey God, they will not be successful. They will fail. And when you hear the story of the walls of Jericho and how they're going to capture a city, not using any weapons, only by walking, and as long as they do it according to God's plan, they will be successful, that's how this bracket works with that story. So you can even have this inclusio literary device involved in narrative accounts and stories, and they can, take up, they can take up large sections of text as well. So that one's a little bit easier to spot than what the chiasm is. And that's my last one. Over the past, was it, three or four weeks? I can't even remember now. That brings us to a total of 23 different things to spot in the text of Scripture. If you grab the handout back there, I made a list of all of those items to be looking for with a description of them and with a, uh, at least one biblical reference to show uh, or one biblical example to show how it appears in the text of Scripture. So be sure to grab one of those if you want it. I'm about to do a quick review because then I'm putting you to work for a few minutes. So here's the review. When you're looking specifically at sentences, be sure to look for repetition. That one's just looking for a word that repeats over and over again. Look for contrast. Look, look for those occasions when the text is intentionally posing opposites or making a, uh, or showing the differences between two words, two ideas, two individuals, so on. Look for comparisons where there is the similarities being drawn between two ideas, two words, two people, so on. Look for lists. Look for those occasions where we have more than one item being grouped together in some capacity. Look for cause and effect. Look for the, those words or phrases that, re, that reveal such a relationship. Look for figures of speech. That's where terms are used in a non-literary way, in a, in a figurative, metaphorical way. Look for conjunctions and notice what the conjunctions are joining. 
Notice the verbs. Pay attention to their tense. Pay attention to whether they're active or passive. Pay attention to whether they're imperatives or, or they're, they're showing continued action. Pay, note the pronouns and identify their antecedents. But then you get into the general, then you get into the paragraphs and larger sections. Pay attention to the general to specific or specific to general phraseologies. That's when we have a general statement that is followed up by details and the specifics that uh, expand on that general statement. And you can have the, the reverse of that where you're given the specifics and then you're given a summary statement. So watch for that. Notice for questions and answers, and if a, if a text is designed to, with a question in mind and then that question can be rhetorical and the answers can follow by the author or in the narratives, you can see a question and answer in dialogue sometimes, which brings us to the next one. Number three there, dialogue. You're looking at the conversations between people and you want to note who's talking to who and who's saying what. You want to know if other people are listening. You want to know what the setting is, things like that. Also, pay attention to purpose and purpose statements and result clauses. Uh, what those are are statements that reveal why something happened. Uh, and you can often insert the phrase in order that or so that to determine purpose or result statements. That also uh, is similar to means statements where you're looking for the means by which something happened. And so you're looking for the how something happens in the means section. You're looking for the why in the purpose and results, but the how in the means. And then look for conditional clauses. That's the if-then if statements. But remember the then probably won't appear in English because we've kind of Remove that from our English uh, literary structure for the most part. Uh, also look for the actions and roles of people versus God, because in, in certain texts there will be a description of what we're supposed to do, meanwhile God is doing this. So you want to note those two differences. Also look for emotional terms. You want to look for that language that connotes uh, greater emotion than, than the average everyday language, like when the word entreat or plead is used instead of ask, that sort of thing. And then you want to look for tone. You want to uh, uh, be able to identify, based on that emotional language to a large degree, you want to be able to identify uh, what's the, the tone of this message. You know, one thing I didn't mention when we talked about tone, I believe last week or the week before, I can't remember anymore. You ever get a text message and you can't identify the tone? Isn't that frustrating? Did they mean this in a snippy way or an innocent way? Well, we have to do some of that with the text of Scripture. We've got to identify uh, some of the tone. And you can, do, you can do that to some degree. You can determine if there's sorrow being expressed or if there's anger being expressed and that sort of thing. Look for connections between the literary unit you are studying and that which precedes and follows it. You want to try to figure out how this story or this paragraph relates to what's before and after. You want to look for story shifts. You want to look for those, big, those transitions that occur, whether it's the language being used or the, uh, the, how the accounts just suddenly go through a change. You may remember we talked about how the story of David and Bathsheba kind of serves as a pivotal point in David's story because everything before it was positive, everything after it was negative, so on. Uh, then we talked about interchange tonight. That's, that's noticing the shifting back and forth between two stories or two characters. And then the uh, chiasm, just know that that's there. Um, and then inclusio, that's the bracketing where there's something on the front end and something on the back end. I know that's a lot, and it... it 
takes time to work through a passage of Scripture and try to observe all those things. But here's what we're going to do. We did this a couple of weeks ago. We're going to take five minutes, and if you grab the handouts, we're going to look at the text of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, and I want to do another practice where you try to identify as many things as you can. The beauty is this time, if you grabbed handouts, you have a list of all the things you should be looking for. And what I want you to do is take the time to work through Deuteronomy chapter 6 and identify as many things as you can. Afterwards, we'll discuss. We're going to take about five minutes. I know you're not going to get everything. Uh, but, uh, and if you're joining us online, uh, you should be able to see the, the text of the Scripture on your screen. And we invite you to do the same. Uh, and afterwards, we'll, we'll discuss what we observe, but you'll also be able to see um, the observations of the authors of the text that we've been using for this. So I'm going to give you about five minutes to work on this. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, see what you can find. Kind of wish I had one of those Jeopardy sounds going, something like that. Does anybody need a handout that did not get one? Oh, and by the way, don't flip it over. You cheaters already have, haven't you? Can I say it feels so empowering to actually give class homework as a, as a teacher? And remember, some of your observations you may not provide an answer to. Some of your observations may be you posing a question to look up later.
Give you about another minute. All right, pencils down. Um, what are the observations you made? Just raise your hand, and, and I'll call on you, but just anything. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to run through the list. Just what, what kind of things did you observe in the text? Say that again. The tone. What would you say the tone is? Kind of hopeful? So, hopeful yet cautionary at the same time. Wonderful. Anybody else? Uh, observations? Brian? The figures of speech? Can you, what, what were some of the figures of speech you noticed? Milk and honey. It's funny because that doesn't really tempt me that much. What other observations? Uh, Phil? The repetition of what? Okay. What else? What, what purpose result? What's the purpose? 
that you may observe. And that's what I was looking for. There we go. We got a purpose statement. What else? I'm sorry. You're so far back there. A cause and effect. Which cause and effect did you see? So the, the cause and effect is if you keep the laws, your days are long. All right. Anything else? I mean, I know there's something else. But other observations you want to mention? Brian. Of? Which, which words did you notice? We've already had mention of commandments, statutes, and rules. Did you notice anything else? The Lord your God, the phrase Lord your God, okay? Yep. Yep. Uh, Phil. Yes, if you're careful to do them, it will go well with you. Yes. And there's a, and it's paralleling the one that's in verse 2 to some degree. Now, uh, great job, guys. We're going to throw, if you flip the page over, which some of you already done, and Bob was going to turn that in as his results. Um, but if you flip the page over, you'll see what the authors of the book came up with. However, they're using the NIV, and I, I choose to use the ESV, so there will be some discrepancies. But I've got it. Oh, I didn't press the button. I'll put it up here on the screen so you can see uh, some of their observations. Uh, you'll notice that they, they, re- re- they recognize some of the repetition of words like children, they noticed the Lord your God, as, as uh, Brian had pointed out, as well as the command, decrees, and so on. But notice uh, the words they circle, they usually draw a line to to show where it gets repeated. Of course, I've only got about half of the page on the screen right now to make it uh, large enough to see. You can see the, they've identified purpose statements. Um, they, uh, oh, what was the other one I was going to call it? They, they note some cause and effect relationships with the letters C and E. Um, they also identified lists. They, they viewed commands, decrees, and laws as a list to be observed. Uh, you can see a mean statement over here on the left, fear God by keeping his decrees and commands, and so on. So those are, oh, they, get, they identify a general to specific there on the phrase so that it may go well with you and that you may increase. They identified going well with you as the general statement and you may increase and possibly what, I can't see what comes after that, might be part of the specific as well. Um, so th- you can start to see some of the uh, uh, things we've, we've been talking about appear here. Let me show you the last half of that screen for those who are online with us especially. Now you can see how they started um, uh, noted, writing out the cause and effect relationships. Uh, they're, they're, they're writing out some of the information they observed and... Uh, I was trying to remember the other thing I was going to point out. Uh, they, they, they note a connection over here on the right side of the screen, connection with ancestors, and not so much connecting it with, with a passage from before, but they do note that there's a connection happening. Also, on the front end of the text, I forgot to mention this, they observe the word these as a reference back to previous texts and, and kind of uh, observe that that needs to be noticed. So, I wanted to give you a chance to once again see these things in action, to just practice them a tad bit. I encourage you to 
grab a text every once in a while and practice these, these things. It, they can just be useful tools in your, in your reading. Now, uh, with that, we're going to take a break. Now, oh, not take a break. We're not like going for a five-minute bathroom break or anything. We're going to take a break from looking at the things we need to read in the text. What we're going to do is we're going to remind ourselves of the interpretive journey because now we're going to transition into something else. Remember, the process involves us identifying what the text meant to its original audience to, to, to focus on their time and place, then to identify what divides us, what separates us in terms of culture, language, time, situation, and then to find the biblical principle that can connect between that time and place to our time and place, and then to compare the biblical principle with what the rest of Scripture says on the subject, and then we can make application. So we're still in phase one. We've, phase one has involved us first learning how to read. Now phase one involves us trying to understand context. And the first thing we need to do in the process of really starting to understand context is to deal with our own pre-understanding. Let me explain what that means, and I do have some quotes on the screen to help you. We as readers of the Bible are not by nature neutral and objective. We bring a lot of preconceived notions and influences with us to the text when we read. We don't always realize we do this. It's just subconscious. One major influence can, that can skew our interpretive process and lead us away from the real meaning of the text is what we call pre-understanding. Pre-understanding includes specific experiences and previous encounters with the text that tend to make us assume we already understand it. We bring baggage to the text. And I'm going to identify tonight uh, with our remaining time five types of pre-understandings that we bring to the text that we need to be conscious of to try to minimize the effect of. So, for example, one is our previous encounters with the text. Pre-understanding includes all that you have heard in Sunday school, sermons, Bible studies, and your private reading. It can also be formed by music, like the hymns we sing, or the, or the art you've observed in your life, or even non-biblical literature. Think about how many people's concept of hell is not defined by the Bible as much as it is Dante's Inferno. So even what we encounter in the world around us has an effect on our preconception of the text. Anything you've ever heard about a subject in a sermon before can impact what you perceive about it before you even start reading it. And so that's something worth knowing. Has there ever been something you assumed about a text because you heard it preached or taught in a class, only to find out later, later that it was completely wrong? I have. I mentioned it just a couple of weeks ago, actually. That conversation between Peter and Jesus, Jesus on the shores of Galilee. You have this, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And as a preacher, I've done this, and many others have, noted the different terms for love that those two use. Jesus always uses the agapao verb of love. Peter always answers with the phileo verb of love. Until Jesus, on the third time he asks it, changes his terminology from agapao to phileo to match Peter's. And I have made much of that. Others have made much of that. 
When in reality, in the, in the Greek language, it doesn't matter that much. Those words get interchanged in all forms of Greek literature with the same meaning. If you open up a commentary on the text, a, 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 a scholarly commentary on the text, you're probably not going to have that observation made. You're also going to... Uh, Anyway, that's one that changed for me. I, I thought I had a second one, but I didn't. I lost it. That's one that changed for me over time, is not to make as much about that, that love language discrepancy. That's why your English translations don't make a difference. They, they don't distinguish those words for love. It's because in the Greek language, those words don't differ. They are used simultaneously, parallel to each other. So that's one for me. We can bring preconceived notions like that based on what we've been taught or heard before. Also, we can bring theological agendas. We can dive into the text with our own theological understanding and look for it. This is called, Ben, what is this called? Eisegesis. We come into the text with our own, what we want it to say, to fit what we believe rather than what it's actually saying. Sorry to call on you there. <laughs> I, I thought you were reading my mind. Anyway, our own theological... I love what one, uh, one author called this. He called it overstanding instead of understanding. Overstanding the text because we're standing over the text and, and dictating what it's going to say instead of standing under the text and let it speak for itself. You can go into a study of the text with your own uh, theological bent and, pro, uh, and project it onto the text if you want to. It's not just those in denominations that do it. People even in the churches of Christ do it. And so we have to be careful uh, about projecting what we want the text to say instead of letting the text speak for itself. We can also allow familiarity to influence our study of the text. If there's a passage you've heard over and over again, or a story you've heard over and over again, you may feel so familiar with it that you don't need to learn anything new from it. Can anybody identify a section of the New Testament that you've heard me preach more than five times since I've been here? Don't be, don't be afraid. I'm not upset. I can tell you this. The parable of the talents has probably featured into over 10 sermons since I've been here. And we can approach that text very easily with so much familiarity, it, I can, that we forget to find something new in it. We can make it redundant. Think about even the parable of the Good Samaritan. How many of you could tell me that parable right now without opening the Bible? Maybe not word for word, but you know how it goes, and that might prevent you from actually studying it and discovering something new. We are quite capable of that because we're so familiar with the text, and so familiarity can be a, a problem for us when it comes to pre-understanding, as can cultural baggage. Our culture has a tremendous influence on how we read and interpret the Bible. It tends to make us skew the text as we read it, twisting it to fit our own worldview. I believe Stan Burnett did a class not long ago on, on looking at Scripture 
through, uh, not through Western eyes, but through the original, what was that class called? Viewing Scripture through Eastern eyes. It was trying to take the culture out of this looking at the text. We do that. We let the, uh, the westernized American culture that we're used to fill in the gaps of the text for us. And I, the authors of the book I'm using gave the greatest example I could, uh, that I've ever seen. How many of you, what do you picture when you picture Jonah in the belly of that giant fish? Well, you picture a whale, number one. But what does the interior of the fish in Jonah look like? It looks like a giant barrel-shaped cavern with a little bit of ankle-deep water. And Pinocchio's in there moving around. He's got six to eight feet diameter all around him. He's just stuck inside of a fish. But he's, he's able to sit up, stand up possibly. That's not what the intestines of a fish look like. But as Ben just called out, how many of you have seen the movie Pinocchio? The author said it this way, when we go to imagine what this scenario looked like with Jonah, our brains start digging through the files to find something comparative. And they just automatically find the Pinocchio story subconsciously because it's filed away in well bellies for us. And that's then what we project onto the text, when in all actuality, he's probably situated in the intestinal coils of the fish, squunched up in with all the other things that are in there, with no wiggle room, really. And he's got the digestive juices attacking him. He's not floating on some sort of uh, uh, crate or anything like that in the belly of the fish, but that's how we project it, just because of our culture. Disney made a blockbuster movie, and that's what we go to. We have a tendency to make those connections unintentionally, and we bring our cultural baggage to our study of the text. We also bring our heritage. Each of us has inherited values, ideas, and images from our, from our, sorry, from our familial, ecclesiastical, and national heritage. Our families, our church history, and our uh, uh, cultural history, our, our national history, all impact how we view Scripture. And that they, they, they bring something to the... So think about it in the terms of your socioeconomic status. For those who grew up in an upper-middle-class family, the passages in the text of Scripture that speak to, to uh, finances and wealth are going to be understood a lot differently than someone who grew up impoverished in New Delhi and India. It's just a totally different uh, uh, view of Scripture. When I come to Matthew chapter 6 and, and read about uh, read Jesus saying that uh, God takes care of the birds, God takes care of the flowers, and I shouldn't worry about what I eat or what I wear or, or, or what, I, what I drink. I'm just like, of course, of course not. I don't have to worry about that. But I've never had to worry about that. I've never been without clothes. I've never been without food. I've never known what it was like to wake up one morning and not know what I'm going to eat that day. To wake up and there not be food in the kitchen somewhere. There are some people who have. And they encounter that text differently than I do. 
So we bring that stuff from our, our lives to the text. And we just need to be conscious of it. We can't remove it. We can't eliminate it. We just need to be aware that when we're studying Scripture, we might be putting, projecting something onto it. And we need to do our best to be as neutral with the text as possible. Because here's the problem. When it comes to pre-understanding, that, that automatic transportation of, of, what, what, of our pre-understanding onto the text is called interpretational reflex. It's a natural thing to do, and we do it without thinking, but it affects our interpretation in two ways. One, it creates a tendency to fill in all the gaps and ambiguities in the biblical text with explanations and backgrounds from our culture and from our experience and from our previous encounters. We start filling in the gaps like we do, like with Jonah. That's one thing it does, but even more dangerous to that is it preforms a parameter of limiting possibilities for a text even before we grapple with its meaning. In other words, we subconsciously create a world of interpretive possibilities and impossibilities before we even study the text. When we bring those pre-understandings, when we don't keep our pre-understandings in check, what we do is we say, it can, before we ever read the text, it can mean this or it can mean that, but it can't mean this. Now, there is a degree to which that must happen, a text cannot mean what it did not mean to its original audience. That is a parameter it has, that has to be there that we've talked about in this class. It also, a text cannot mean something that contradicts elsewhere with something in, elsewhere in the Bible. That's another parameter. But those aren't parameters from our perception and our experience. Those are biblical parameters, so to speak. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. God is not an author of confusion. That's a biblical parameter. So, we need to be careful because we could be limiting our ability to interpret and understand the passage by what we bring to the table ahead of time. So we need to be conscious of our pre-understanding and do our best to neutralize it. With that, we're going to wrap up this evening. Next week, we're going to launch into more context. Now that we have grappled with the existence of our pre-understandings, we're now going to go next week and address his, his, the uh, historical and literary context of passages to prepare us in the, in the effort from transitioning to reading to studying. Let's close out with a quick word of prayer. Lord God, we are so grateful for our opportunity to study tonight, and, and it's my humble prayer that uh, what has been communicated about studying your word has been uh, beneficial and, and understandable. And may you bless us as we seek to be students of your word and help us to improve in that arena and help us to seek to seek your word out, to desire it, for it to be food for us. Lord, we love you, and it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.